0: Hi, I'm John Roberts. I'm just Fishlock. This is Owen oh, Timothy Jones. I'm Owen Vaughan Williams. This is Tash Harden. And this you are, are listening to Coleman Had a Dream Podcast.
1: Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest Coleman Had a Dream podcast. I am here as ever with Ruth. Hello, Ruth.
2: Hello from Washington.
1: Um we have a very special guest with us today though. We have a uh, Shrewsby player and former Welsh international Dave Edwards. Thanks for joining us, Dave.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to have a run through talking about Dave's career um, as a as a club footballer, um, as well as then talk about what we're most interested in. I guess his his Wales career. Um, so, Dave, how did you kind of get into football and, and being picked up as a as a young player?
0: Um, I suppose I was picked up quite late, um, considering nowadays where kids are sort of training at six and seven academies, but. Yeah. Um, I grew up really sort of on the Welsh border, right in the countryside and from a farming family. Um, So I spent a lot of time on a farm when I was young. Um, My my older brother, he was the one who was more into milking the cows and taking the around, whereas I just never really took to it. Um, As much as I tried, I tried to join my my dad in the parlour early in the mornings, but I just never really got into it. So I always ended up kicking the ball around, whether it was outside in the fields or in a barn or, or something like that. And we always loved football, my brother as well. Um, so I've been into it since I was very, very young. But I didn't get picked up till I was 16, sort of in my year 11 in school. I was playing for Shropshire, it's still the county. Um, but I was just playing local football. And at that time in my year 11, I was actually playing adults football. I was playing for my local pub team on a Sunday. And I was playing in the, the county Premier League on a Saturday. Um, but then a Shrewsbury Scout sort of watched one of our Shropshire games against Chester, I think it was and from there he asked me to join Join, and luckily for me at the time, the under-16s manager at Shrewsbury was a guy called Nigel Vaughan, Welsh international, ex-Wolves, yeah, um, a, a midfielder as well, and I just hit it off of him in terms of the way he coached and the way I played, and uh, and from there on I, sort of, I signed my YTS and then he got promoted to the youth team manager for the following season uh, and that's where my journey started.
2: Did he play a key role for you then, Dave, in terms of sort of mentorship?
0: Yeah. To this day, I had a – obviously, apart from my parents, I had a coach um, in local football um, called C.M. Williams, and he he really developed me from the age of 8, nine, ten, 10 onwards. I was about 14, 15. But then from that age, Nigel was probably the most important figure in my football career. Um he really, even even to this day, he's been the one who, who's guided me. Everything I do now, with within football and even within my life as well, has come down from a lot of his mentorship and the way he handles himself, the way he approaches football. Um, and he developed me so much as a player, but then also as a person. And right through my Shrewsbury career, even when I wasn't in the youth team and into the first team, he was always the first phone call if I needed advice, and still speak to him now. Um, he was such such an important part, and I was so lucky that. My time of joining Shrewsbury was when he was there, and then he got he took on the youth team manager job in my first season as a sort of full time, if you like. Um, and it just all worked in synchronicity, and yeah, huge part. And then obviously playing for Wales, playing for Wolves, so many similarities between us both. It was, um, yeah, he was a real good role model for me.
1: Um, obviously, you've been a professional for a long, long time. What are the... I say a long, long time. Uh, you, you're probably the same age as me, so that's a, a bad thing to say. But, um, yeah, what what have you seen as kind of big changes? Because obviously, in the in the 17 or so years, you've been a pro. A, a lot has changed in football. Yeah. Yeah. I think
0: the nuts and bolts of football are still very much the same. The, the dressing rooms are still the same and things like that. I think the the spotlight which is on football has magnified beyond belief from when I was a 16, 17-year-old to what it is now. Um, I was always, I think, reasonably professional in everything I did, but I still sort of went out with my friends and we'd were quite drinking after games and things like that, whereas now you couldn't let your hair down as much as you could then just because of the evolution of camera phones and social media and things like that. It's, yeah. it's an absolute mindset. you know, one wrong thing could damage your reputation, could damage your career and you wouldn't be able to come back from it. So you've got to be a lot more careful with everything you do. Um, I think that's the biggest change. Obviously the the money has come into it a lot more, but the details of the dressing room are very, very similar, but it's just outside the dressing room. that I think you have to, you have to be a professional on and off the pitch at all times. And there's no getting away from that. And the ones who, who aren't and try and get away from it, you already see it. Examples in the lockdown period of, Players who want to kind of go and still do their own thing—it's it's impossible. You'll get fired out eventually. So yeah. um, nowadays, they have to live like professionals.
2: Do, do clubs support the younger players with with things like that, Dave? Or, or are clubs still a little bit guilty of concentrating on what's happening on the on the field?
0: No, I think there's definitely improved over recent years. Um, I think it's more they have they have. PFA representatives come in, they'll have um, maybe different companies come in, sp- social media specialists, and they'll talk to lads, especially younger lads, about how important it is that you, you, what you do away from football, because when a player gets scouted now, one of the first things that the recruitment guys will do is they'll look at their social media. They'll look at their past. They can dig into their personal life. Not something you used to be able to do. You just have to kind of go off what other coaches say, but now they'll sort of deep dive through years and years of social media posts, and you can't get away from that. And that, it is difficult because everyone does silly stuff when they're younger, and you learn from mistakes. But I think you have to be a lot more mature now as a 16-, 17-year-old coming into football than what you used to. And clubs are doing their best, I think, to to do that. But you've got to remember, kids, are, they're still young at 16, 17 years old. God think, God knows what I was sort of doing back then, which I shouldn't have been doing. Um, but luckily, no one would ever see it. Whereas, say nowadays, you have to grow up very fast. And that's where it's to feel a bit sorry for the youth of today. But obviously, with that comes the rewards of financial rewards, fame, all those sort of things. So they have to grow up very quickly.
1: Um. Looking at your your career as you've kind of have, have gone through the divisions and through through different clubs, what do you think has been kind of your career, your highlights and lowlights? Really, obviously, I'm sure getting promoted with Wolves is up there, but I'm sure there's been some tricky times along the way as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I think obviously playing for Shrewsbury first and foremost that was a dream come true. I was a massive Shrewsbury fan as a kid. Um, used to watch them home and away, play for the away supporters team. Um, so to make go make my debut for Shrewsbury was a huge thing, and then to play for five years was was amazing. Um, and then just the sort of the rise through the leagues, I'm so grateful I got to do it that way. Starting in the, the conference, really, then working my way up to the Premier League. Um, I think the promotion from Wolves in 0809 to the Premier League was was really big in my career. Getting to play Premier League football. Um, and then also be part of that Wolves team which kind of resurrected themselves after mm. the double relegations coming back up from League One and being a part of a team which kind of puts the club where it is today, sort of yeah. give it the foundation to build. Um, and also growing in importance at Wolves in terms of becoming a leader probably earlier than what I would ever imagined at a sort of youngish age of 27, 28. I was one of the older players in the groups and um, sort of a real affinity with the fans there Um love that it's such a huge club. love being at Wolves every second of it, but there obviously was tough times there as well with, the, as I said, the double relegation and injuries and form at times not being great. Um, but from a club career, there's two promotions from Wolves. Um, and then I think, even though since I've been back at Shrewsbury, I suffered with injuries when I first came back and this season's been a bit, obviously, stop-starting now with everything that's going on. But re-signing for Shrewsbury's was was very special. And I really hope there's, there's one more Professional high for me if I can be part of a Shrewsbury team which can then go on and, and get promoted to the championship something which was not a league with have not been in for 40 years so that'd be massive for me um, but yeah all of it's been a journey but one that you remember very very fondly
1: and I quite like you. you've obviously had a great year this year with everything that's happened with the with the FA Cup and everything like that that must have been a great experience to be part of that not just for you as a footballer but also you know part of the city you know the the town itself and you know obviously being a fan yourself
0: because yeah, the first four or five years I was at Shrewsbury, obviously I played a lot of games, played over hundred games, but we never really did well in the Cups. So we never played in I never played in a massive game, um, to well to what the Liverpool game was this year. So to get the opportunity to play in front of a, a full ice at Shrewsbury and then get the opportunity to go to Warmfield, I'd be lucky enough to to win at Anfield twice before with Wolves um and, and be a part of that so to take to go there with Shrewsbury was extra special and obviously the FA Cup as well yeah. you get more tickets alive for the away end so there was 9,000 Shrewsbury fans in the Anfield road end seeing the blue and amber behind the goal being captain that day it was just yeah that was very special and these moments which have happened later in my career um, I'm, I'm glad they happened as I've sort of matured and being able to take it all in because as a young kid it kind of all goes over your head a little bit similar with what the youth was being able to really take all those special experiences in because football is not going to last forever and yeah. you'll never be able to replace what playing does so um, to have these moments and keep having these moments is, is really amazing.
1: Ruth, really?
2: Yeah I wanted to ask about um, a little bit of, about what's happening in the lockdown as, as a player. Dave, yeah. like what what expectations are on you in terms of training and keeping fit and how how are the club kind of planning to transition transition back to to being active
0: um the, the club have been amazing first and foremost the, the contact we've had right from the top from the chairman the chief executive the manager um we've been updated all the time what's happening and Financially, they've looked after all the players and the staff. Even though we've been furloughed, they've still guaranteed our, our wages 100%. Um, so they've been great from that end. But it's it's been hard from a physical fitness point of view because we've never really had a date which we can guarantee we're going to be back in on. There's been dates we've been working towards and they keep getting pushed back and then the sports science team have to look really hard at over-training and then possibly being under by the time we go back and look at all these different scenarios. So we've been having steady build-ups with them as the dates get pushed back. We've sort of been coming off again. All stuff we do at home, all fitness things we do at home. Um, but I, I can kind of see now that it doesn't look like we're going to be continuing. I'll be very surprised if League One continues um, so it's a case now of managing ourselves to be in the best place possible for the start of next season. but especially for me, I'm thirty-four years old, so time off is sort of really good for me in terms of letting the body heal because you've always got little niggles and stuff. So i almost don't want to do too much, too much running, don't wanna to put too much pressure on my knees and my ankles. If I have a chance to to rest them, then that's more beneficial to me at my stage of my career than it is to keep working and pushing through. So it's been a juggling act from, from our end, but the, the club has been great. We've been having weekly um, competitive sessions, whether it's a, a 5K run, a, a 1K run, sprints, whatever it is, and you're all tracked on GPS and, and whatnot. So if you, get, if you lose to a goalkeeper, you have a forfeit. If you lose to a member of staff, you have a forfeit. So it still makes it very competitive, and there's leaderboards and things like that. So it still keeps the team spirit really good.
2: And Howard, you mentioned that Shrewsbury are, are doing okay financially in, in the sense that they've been able to furlough but still guarantee payments and things. And, and obviously there's, there's lots of clubs that are not not doing so well in, in that regard. What would you like to see happen in, try, in terms of trying to support clubs, Dave? Um,
0: there's going to have to be some, some intervention and some help from some outside sources that it has to be for League One and League Two. So I'm so fortunate that Shrewsbury... Probably from the outside looking at it, it's got to be one probably the best, if not one of the best, um, run clubs in League One, and League Two, um, probably even towards the Championship as well. Just the job the chairman's done. He's been in charge for sort of 25, 30 years now, and he took the club on, and it was in a lot of debt, and he's built it to a real healthy place now, with money in the bank, own the stadium, they've got all the hospitality at the stadium. It's it really is uh, should be what clubs try to emulate um, but there is a lot of clubs who live hand to mouth in the f- Football League and unprecedented times like this they're, they're not going to be able to um, get through about some sort of help they're obviously needing players and things to take deferrals and not getting any income mean, in. it's going to be nearly impossible for every club to come through this without some sort of help from the EFL the Premier League the government. I'm not quite sure where it's all going to come from, but it's for football to continue and for the lower leagues, the pyramid to continue, then it is going to have to be there because um, it'd be catastrophic if it comes to place where there was ten or fifteen teams who aren't going to make it through this, and you're going to have over a hundred professional players, probably more than that, all sort of on the the transfer scrappy at the end of the season, all trying to find clubs, and then clubs can't afford to take on new players. It, it could be absolutely catastrophic. So. There needs to be intervention. I hope it, it does happen because as much as everyone loves the Premier League, I love watching it. Um, but it's so important that you do keep the the rest of the football pyramid healthy, um, keep feeding into the football league, and for clubs like Shrewsbury. If you're from Shrewsbury, you support Shrewsbury. It's, it's one of those places. So there's plenty of other clubs like that around the country, um, and it'd be say catastrophic for the community if, if our football club isn't here and other football clubs aren't there as well.
1: You mentioned there obviously the the Premier League and uh, what you know you'd like to see and I totally agree with you. I think you need some sort of kind of drip down from the Premier League to support smaller clubs and and clubs through the divisions. Obviously the the Premier League have said today that they're looking to come back and start. I think it's like the 14th of June or, or something like that. Would you kind of support yeah. that without the fans or is that something you're you're not really too fussed about?
0: Um for me I I don't see the um the necessity to really try and get back with what we're in there, the pandemic we're in at the moment. It's, it's sort of once-in-a-generation stuff and to be trying to force football back early just to, I don't know, as long to please sponsors, TV companies, trying to improve the mood of the nation, which I see is moved around a little bit. It, it just seems silly to me. It's not something I'd be comfortable in doing is going back and playing until I knew absolutely everything was as safe as it possibly could be. I know it's never going to be 100%. Um, but to go in and you've got a young family at home and, and things like it, it's it's a risk which I don't think football needs to take at the moment I think fans as well I'm, I'm not a big fan of it being played behind closed doors I know they're going to have to because it's probably going to be next year before fans can be watching football again so I understand that but it's not nice for a player playing in empty stadiums and it definitely will take some intensity off the game it'll take an edge off the game um, it won't be as exciting to watch I can guarantee that on TV but um, I spoke to um, I spoke to Sky actually a few weeks ago about it, and to, when you look at what the football governing bodies do with things like the World Cup, what they've done with the Euros and things like being able to move them around, um, but then they can't move the Premier League back another two or three months. Yeah. I think if you left it another month or six weeks, the whole world would have a, a lot better picture of what, what is going to be coming in the future. So for the sake of that to maybe put the season back and restart it in August or, or September and then finish it in November then maybe it takes two or three cycles to kind of get it back to the, the August start date I don't see there being a problem with that in the, in the grand scheme of things and football should be able to move like that so they did it enough when money's talking for the World Cup to be in Qatar they can move that to to the winter and move schedules around. So for a global pandemic like this, I'm sure they should be able to, to move it around a little
1: bit more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like Having watched some of the the German football, I've watched a bit of the Bundesliga, and whilst it's great to see some football back again, it's, it's definitely not the same as it was. So I, I totally agree. And I think... You can see, like Kante, for example, said he doesn't really want to come back, and uh, Troy Deeney has obviously said something as well. You kind of got to wonder if it's what the value of it is if you're not going to get all the players you want to get back as much as anything else. It just kind of seems a bit. I don't know, it seems like they're chasing the money rather than looking after the well-being. But anyway, I don't want to go off on a, on a rant, as, I, uh, as I'm fond of, so I'll stop there. Um, just to, to look back at your Wales career a little bit, um, you obviously played for Wales at some of the different age groups. Um, was it, were you always going to be a Wales player, or was that something that kind of changed as you went along?
0: Um, I wouldn't say, no. I think um, my dad's side of the family, um, very proud Welshman, um, they were more rugby, uh, especially my my uncles. It was a huge Welsh rugby fan, um, so I always had that upbringing. Um, but at the time when I was growing up playing football, sort of when I was five, six, seven years old, Wales as a national team were never sort of front runners anything. And England were. I remember my first football memory was Italian '90 watching England play. So I think from when I was younger, I followed probably England more, but then as I started playing myself and again I think Nigel Vaughan was a, a huge part of this for me because my first play for Wales at under 17s and I think he has spoke to the Welsh, he, he knew I was my, my dad was from a Welsh background and things like that and he spoke to some guys at the Welsh FA and said um, about me and me possibly going down for some trials for the under 17s um, he asked if I'd be interested I was like yeah 100% um, went down and absolutely loved it and I, I can honestly say from the first time I put, pulled on a Welsh jersey um, I felt so patriotic and I never saw a turn back even though I've always had a Welsh in me I still always really watched I'd say I was probably as a fan I was more of an England fan through my younger years Um but it's, that's changed now and my boy he only wears Welsh shirts um, so it's definitely kind of he's got more English than Welsh but he's still (laughs) he's not allowed to wear an English shirt right so um, yes I'm I'm definitely very patriotic now towards Wales and and always will be but under 17s Nigel Bourne played a big part in that and I was in a squad um, Peter Nicholas was the manager then um, then under 19s with with Big Nev um, under 20s and under 21s with Jimmy Shoulder and Brian Flynn after him so I was was lucky to play for all the age groups and, and it's crazy looking back that um, compared to what the Welsh set like now the younger years how well they do and you look it's almost like a conveyor belt of Welsh talent coming through but back then it, it wasn't it was just all Cardiff and Swansea youngsters playing a few from Wrexham and then that was it really you get, might get the off Premier League player but I look back at my under-17 squads and my under-19 squads and I don't, I don't think any of them have sort of had a, a, a real career playing sort of above League two really where you compare that to now the amount of talent coming through it's frightening um so it's good to see Wales and move forward a, a lot in that and it was probably happens until the 21s but I started playing the likes of Joe Ledley and Wayne Hennessy and, and players like that um and then also you will start getting a bit more tougher
2: yeah I wanted to ask about um obviously eventually you made your senior uh, debut under under Toshack, and you've you've mentioned yeah. some some of the coaches and managers you had along the way, and you've, you've certainly worked with some interesting characters over the years, Dave. But what was uh, what was that like making that step into the into the senior squad?
0: Um, it was it was really seamless. It was because I think at that point, John Toshak had this big vision of sort of protecting the future of Welsh football, and he was giving a lot of young lads debuts and integrating with the squad. Um, Brian Flynn was huge in that. And what Brian Flynn did, I think, was when you look at the Euro 2016 squad, where pretty much every single player had come and played under Brian Flynn at some point, it was showing was starting to work. So you always, I remember Brian Flynn kind of telling me, I think we played away in Sweden, I, I want to say, for the under 21s. I remember him sitting me down the next day. He used to have a deep for all the players individually. He sat down to me. He said, "And You're going to be the next one that goes into the first team. And to me, that's how I was still at Shrewsbury. Seen a million miles, like never seen myself play the first team, but you could see other lads doing it, you could see the journey. Um, and then I, I got my chance, and there was lads in I mean, it, was a lot easier because probably half the squad was lads I've already played with at some sort of youth level. Um, so to, to go in and fit in it was it was easy, but then it was obviously still quite in, intimidating when you have I think my very first squad, Ryan Giggs was in it, I think he's one of his last squads, and Craig Bellamy and, and players like that, so it was intimidating. But I'd say, I loved it, and John Toshack was was brilliant for Welsh football in terms of you look at I think everything that's happened now, he's given all those lads all that experience at a younger age, and it kind of then all come into fruition then with different coaches later on. Um, I think John Toshak, he was he was brilliant, a spot and talent in terms of his his coach, and that it was very indifferent. Nothing I'd ever experienced. <laughs> before. I think a lot of lads have come out and said how tough it was at times. um and it certainly was, it was the games we were going into and you thought we'd a, it's not going to work and things like that. But in terms of what he did for me, give gave me all my first caps from the first 20, 25 caps under John Toshak. So I can never, I'll always be grateful to him for that.
1: You've kind of like been through a lot with our with with the different managers. Obviously you talked about the coaching stuff there with Tosak but and that must have been a big change through to to Gary Speed and then on to Chris Coleman as well. What has kind of been the biggest evolution you think that has really made a difference that's taken us from kind of young, promising players gaining experience through to obviously what we've started to achieve now?
0: Um, I think it was Speed up massively. I think what John Tosh did is he built the foundation of everything. He got all the players ready. He kind of recruiting all the players as well in terms of he was all of a sudden getting players from England who had maybe a core Welsh and them or something like that trying to get them all together and then he had all the players there. Um, but then when, when Speedo came in and he had uh, Raymond Verheyen with him as well and all of a sudden it was just chalk and cheese in terms of tactical implementation of, of game plans and things like that. The professionalism went through the roof overnight. It was amazing, it was so relaxed under John Toshack. Um a no good or a bad thing, but when Speeder came in, he knew that modern football wasn't like that anymore and it needed to um, needed to move forward. So he brought in plenty of things the nutrition was completely different. Um the way we trained the video analysis. Um it was just so different. And I think with Raymond Baha'i in there with the the Dutch aspect, I think that's kind of formed what Wales are today in the way they, they pass and move and, and play from the back. I think mean, that was all implemented by Speedo and Raymond. And that was the, the biggest change, I think. Um, and I think when Chris Coleman came in in very, very tough circumstances, I think he maybe just added eventually after the, the rocky start, he just added the, maybe the little bit which was missing. They kind of kept, because obviously Osh in there from where from when Speedo was there. He kept him in, but then I think what Chris Colvin added was that good old Welsh grip to it as well. We are Wales. We're, we're not supposed to be winning games like this. and We had that real sort of belief that everyone was going to run through brick walls, which the team spirit was the best I've ever been involved in, but then we still had that technical aspect to it. We knew we were going to play the right way. We were preparing the right way. We were evaluating performances. Everything was just spot on. And then they added that little bit of, like say, well, grit, determination into the performances as well. And it kind of all was a perfect storm then by the time the Euros come round.
1: Um, I mean, you've talked about that, obviously, a lot has kind of changed and developed. And I'm just kind of intrigued because I, I think I'm right in saying that your first squad was the Slovakia away game where we'd won 5-2 um, yeah. after but obviously the home game was where we lost 5-1 and like I think I was one of you know I think there were about 4,000 people in the Millennium Stadium that day um, was was that the the time that did, things did start to turn or do you think it was kind of a bit further down the line obviously you talked about speed but in terms of the way we were playing was there kind of an atmosphere around the squad of like this experience is starting to pay off now or was it just um, you, you'd kind of get that's what it felt like as a fan anyway is you'd get kind of two good results and three three bad ones would follow and it was, you'd never really know how much progress you were making
0: I think everyone felt like that I think especially under John Toshak, it was I think it was because he played so many young players and international football so different to club football um, and then coming into that environment as probably the average age of our <laughs> national team was probably one of the youngest ever been under John Toshak, I'd imagine <laughs> maybe <laughs> not so much with Brian Giggs and now he's very young but um, <laughs> Yeah, so under John Toshak. And so you were going to get in different performances. I mean, that's the nature of, of being a young footballer. Um, you don't know everything and you haven't got that experience. So we were having games that we were doing really well in, in the old games. But I think what also plays is that is a lot of players just didn't turn up out of the, you get All of a sudden you get a really good squad turn up and we've got the performance and then the next one will be an away game and then you'd have 10 dropouts. And it was just like, whereas the difference then to when... Chris Coleman's in charge. Not one person would ever drop out. You know what I mean? Whereas if you had an honest injury or whatever, then you would obviously be pulled out by your medical team at your club. But there was boys who were playing on a Saturday. They had Wales duty. they are pull out through an injury, but they'd be playing for their club the following Saturday. So you're trying to think, what is the reason behind it? And Yeah, there was far too many lads who, who wouldn't come on trips. I think that probably plays that in different results because I'm sure if, if John Toshak always had a full squad to choose from, we'd have done better in qualifying campaigns. But the disappointing thing under, under John Toshaka was we were never in contention in any of those campaigns to qualify. By the halfway point, we were dead and buried, and then we were just fighting for positioning to try and not finish bottom or to finish fourth or fifth for the for the seeding for the next group. Um, whereas obviously. Since then, we're at a point now which I think is incredible that we're always in contention, and you would have never fought that 10, 15 years ago. So, the way Welsh football has evolved, um, and as you say, the, the conveyor belt of talent coming through now is just so exciting. When you look at other nations close to us, like Republic of Ireland, Scotland, we are miles ahead of them, absolutely miles ahead of them in, in the way we develop young footballers. Um, so, we should be really, really proud of that, and the future definitely is looking bright.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean I think from, from from a fan's perspective, the things that have changed in the last fifteen years or so have just been absolutely incredible. Um I, I just want to ask one more question on the on the Tosh era and then we'll move on to more positive things. You kind of touched on it a little bit there. Was there kind of was that part of the problem at that time that it was kind of almost a resentment maybe toward people who dropped out and like I remember, you know, the similar thing to you. You'd you'd be kind of turning up to the to the match. And you'd not really know who was in the squad anymore, because who'd been in in the morning wasn't there by the afternoon, and, and then so on. And do you like to say did that kind of contribute to the bad results? And then obviously, just to follow on to that, you've talked about the indifferent results, I guess. And then does that kind of like breed an attitude of, I don't want to say negativity, but where it's like this is this was never going to make progress, sort of thing. Do you do you think it needed someone like Speedo to come in, just to give it that kick, or was it? Do you think it always would have got to where we are now?
0: No, I don't think it would have always got to us to the standards right now without Gary Speed coming in, um, and it probably subconsciously go, ends go into our minds that maybe it was feeling that well, if ten miles are drop night like, because they don't care, they're not they don't care about playing for Wales, and it kind of turns into a bit of a a nothing week then, and you don't have that intensity that you need to to go and play big European football matches, which which what they were. It's international football. It's it's huge. It's the pinnacle. Um, so to be going and playing huge nations and then go and play in real tough Eastern European countries, and then you turn up and you say, where so-and-so Oh, He's got a tight arm's Where so-and-so are? He's got a dodgy calf. And it was just, oh, he's got family problems, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it was just, it was endless. It was, it really was. Yeah. When we played that in Azerbaijan, I met 15 pull the Summer games was no one would go. It was yeah. <laughs> looking back, it was scary, it was embarrassing. I think you look at that, it's embarrassing. Large would be more interesting on holidays than coming away from play for Wales, and that that is genuinely what it, it felt like. Yeah. And, and then uh, that's why I do feel sorry for the license. I know we probably could have created a better environments than the last one to come because that's what Gary Speed and Chris Coleman did. But at the same time, he never really had his players to pick from. So going out <laughs> to the likes of Azerbaijan with. 15 hours who would have always been in the squad not turning up and then there was other trips with big numbers pulling out it was something I think that like like you alluded to before subconsciously that would have an effect on the squad definitely um, and it took say Gary Speed to come in and all of a sudden then if you're not going to turn up then I won't pick you it's fine and I think keeping those standards and raising the standards in and around the hotel not just on training in and around the hotel. The way you dress in the hotel, the way you act at dinner, the w- little things like, say, under in the previous regime, you would turn up for breakfast when you wanted, you would leave when you wanted, lunchtime be the same, you start eating when you want and leave when you want. Whereas when Gary Speed coming, it was you no, know, everyone sits down together. When at the time Rambo was captain, when Rambo says we can eat, we're allowed to eat. Um, and then when Rambo's finished and everyone else is finished, that's when you'll leave. And at the time, it's like, this is a bit much. But then you end up speaking to each other for longer. You're not just have a quick dinner, back to your rooms and then play on the computer, whatever you do. You're, you're involved and that builds the team spirit. And that's yeah. something which Chris Coleman kept um, until, I, I'm not sure what the boys do now, but up until the day I left, it was everyone eats together, everyone leaves together, socialise together, everything's as a team. And that, that's where it builds that big team spirit and... I don't think we'd have ever quite got there under John Tosher because of the the era which he managed in and you were expected to kind of look after yourself in a way and be professional to make sure you're right. But it's not quite like that anymore. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I was interested in the... I'm jumping ahead in the timeline, but looking at the current squad and just how many young players are being integrated into it, what is that process like typically, Dave, where you... Uh, you might have five, six, relatively new caps in the squad that they're less familiar with. What's what sort of responsibilities are on the senior players and on the and on the younger players to make that work as a group?
0: Yeah, it's um, it, it's really it's really important, and I mean this is the stuff which was implemented under John Toshack and Brian Flynn. So that model of the way Welsh football's improving, they do such an amazing job to, to implement that, and that's what's been carried on now with development centres around Wales and into England and things like that, getting young kids into football early. But the actual process of coming from the under-21s or whatever is into first team, again, it's it can be quite seamless because you've got other young lads in the squad. Um, but then it's just the group. I think because the group gets on so well and everyone's so open, it just it works as. You would never, ever feel um, out of place. The likes of, say, I don't know. if I was a young lad coming in from Shrewsbury Town and I'm in the first day, I'm thinking, wow. And then, then Gareth Bale sat on the table, I'm thinking, oh my God, he's a superstar. <laughs> There's just, I'll bet you look at Gareth and he's just a normal person. Aaron Ramsey, just a normal guy. Friendly guys say, they'll they'll go and say hello. They'll introduce themselves to him and things like that. And that just, it's just a welcoming group. And I think that's set from the top, that was set for him. From Gary Speed, set from Chris Coleman, and then the players they put in charge of the squads, are the likes of Ashley Williams, all the senior guys, the Joe Ledley's, Wayne Hennessy's, Gareth Bale's, Chris Gunters, everyone is just kind of welcomes people in with open arms. But the same, you've always got that respect for the old, older players as well. I think, and I think naturally they do that. Um, but then I think once everything evolves, they'll end up spending a lot of time with the lads with similar sort of age. But when they train, everyone has fun, when they eat, everyone's all together. Um, you just get to know people. and I think that's the, the perfect model that they've got at the moment. And it's not a daunting thing, apart from having to do your initiation song, that's always daunting. <laughs> but apart from that, um, I think they're very lucky to be coming into a group of, of Welsh players at this stage of their careers.
2: Dare we ask what your song was?
0: I, I was lucky. I, I was part of the early ones who, who didn't have to do a song. No one would hang around enough at dinner long enough for anyone to Yeah, I was lucky. I didn't have to do one. Um, but anyone now, whether it's a new staff member, whether it's a new player, if you walk, if you, if you are in in conspicuously in, walk through the dinner hall at the wrong time, you will get asked. to hotel staff who'll try and get up to sing just because they walked in the wrong time. Um, yeah. That, that's all what he but it's, it's good fun as well. And I think, again, that eases the nerves once that's done and dusted. I think it's, it's a lot
2: easier for the players. To go back to what you were saying about the senior players, I do think we're very fortunate that our mm-hmm. superstar players are far from prima donnas. I think yeah. we're, as a, as a nation, we're very blessed that we've got the level of talent that we've got without the kind of pretensions that go with some of that.
0: Yeah, I think massively and you know, they love their country. I think that's, you look at the two I've put up there, well I'll say three as well, I think Joe Allen fits into that bracket as well, maybe his career is not as as high as what Aaron Ramsey and Scarif Bales is, but in terms of what he brings to Wales, is I think he, he matches them too on every single level, but um, yeah, all you look at them three, they're all so proud to play for their country um, and it will come first and foremost over, over everything else. So. If Gareth Bale had a choice of winning the Euros or winning the Champions League, he'd win the Euros. Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey, the same. It's international football is the main thing, and I think they feel that pressure then as well in a good way. That they feel that they need to, they need to turn up and they need to give everything because a lot of the the Welsh hopes are on their shoulders. And then they, I think they really appreciate them. The the other lads, especially in the Euros, I find this that we know we've got two superstars in our team in Gareth and and Aaron. We know if, if we can work hard as a team, if we can be defensively solid, tactically switched on, do all those horrible things in a game as a team, if we can do all of that, then we'll have a chance of winning because we've got two superstars in our team. Um, and I think they appreciate that, that they both work extremely hard, don't get me wrong. But there'll be times where Chris Cole was saying, don't work so hard, save your energy for them to save your energy for going forward. And then you've got absolute seven or eight workhorses behind them who are given absolutely everything because they know they've got someone on their team who can win matches for them. Um, and that's the hardest thing to do in football is have players who create and players who score. And and we've got two of the world's best. So that's why I think it works well. They really appreciate the work that everyone else does and what the work they do with a team. You might not get that in club level. Like, I imagine Gareth doesn't get that at Real Madrid where he's got... Ten lads, absolutely working their socks off just so he can go and win the game for them. Um, so I think they really appreciate that environment, and obviously we appreciate them because without them, we wouldn't have had half the experiences we've had. So it's it's a wonderful mix. It really is.
1: Um, looking back at your, your your time with Wales, obviously you scored uh, your last goal against Scotland. Uh, Cracky little volley was that one of your best performances? You think in a Wales shirt, or is there another performance where you personally think I've had a cracker there today?
0: Um, I think there's, there's three performances which really stick out in terms of personal performances for me. One was my very first goal against Liechtenstein at, um, at home at the Millennium Stadium. It was a game which was a, was a scrappy game, really, but when you're playing with confidence, I felt like I had, a, I had a good game and I scored my first international goal. I got mad of the match. Um, so that was a really important game for me. Then the Scotland game where I scored as well it's one of those games where you felt like everything I did and everything the team did then. Yeah. That day just clicked, and you talk about the inconsistency under John Toshack. Like that was one of those games where yeah, it was just
1: fantastic.
0: how are we not, how are we not sort of winning every game when we play like that? It just yeah. all seemed to work, and I just thought myself a good game that day. And then the one more in, in recent history, um, I think under Chris Cole, when I played, I'm often played in a deeper role, which isn't what I've ever done at club football, but again, to, to be in the team and one of my strongest um, mm. attributes is anticipation but I usually use that going forward anticipating when the ball's going to be in the box and things but you can use it defensively as well when I play for Wales it's more to try and break up play and, and things like that and we played away in Cyprus and Joe Ledley in the Euro qualifiers and Joe Ledley got injured in training the day before um, and then Joe Allen was injured for that game as well Andy King was supposed to be starting with Joe Ledley but then I got drafted in as well it was a huge game because we knew if we won that, and we'd have a real good chance of qualifying. And again, it was a game I actually scored, but it got disallied and I should yeah. never have been on one, one, yeah. one of my one benches into the box. But I think mean, the rest of the game, I just all I was doing was just, like I said, concentrating winning the ball back, giving it to Gareth Aaron the whole game. Um, and I felt like I had a really good game out right there. One of my favourite games as well for Wales. So I think those three games in particular uh, are the ones that I remember most fondly.
1: It's funny, actually, because obviously we've been watching back the the qualifiers on, you know, through the FAW stuff online on YouTube and stuff. And that was one of the games that we, Ruth and I, obviously talked about and we commented on how well you'd played that day and obviously un- unbelievably unlucky to get the goal disallowed. In fact, the amount of times I think we've said during the campaign, the refereeing, the standard of refereeing in some of those games, home, home and away against Cyprus, I honestly think I could have ref the game and done a better job. Like the home ref was awful. Anyway, um we we were saying though that that was a really interesting part of it is that it was great to see that kind of togetherness and team spirit and everyone kind of shuttling around and everyone breaking up play and people defending everywhere it was it was great to see. Um was that the game that you kind of thought I, th- I think this is happening here because I I I watched that. I, that was not long after I'd moved to America, and I remember watching that in my cl- classroom on my own <laughs> at the end of the school day, and uh, and just kind of going nuts when Gareth scored. And I walking out of work that day thinking, "I I think this has happened. I think like, I think this is going to happen this time." Was was that the one for you as well? Yeah,
0: definitely. I think we, we thought we were probably going to qualify that following Sunday when he played, played Israel, didn't it Cardiff yeah. after that. Um, we knew we had three games left, and we only needed probably four points out of these games. Um, so, yeah, I think looking at them and how well we were playing, all of a sudden it was like, wow, we can do this. And as a Welsh player playing through those years, through the early 2000s, that's something I never thought, I would think. So um, to be a part of that was, was extra special. And when you are going back to sort of players coming in who weren't expecting to start or players come off the bench, Again, that's a testament to how we trained. Everything was, everyone knew everyone's role inside out. It was so much work. And sometimes it'd be boring. Some of the videos we'd be watching, Costium, Robertson particularly, was very good at um, making real short video meetings. So it would only be 10, 15 minutes to keep the lads' attention, but it'd be real to the point. And everyone knew the jobs inside out. And the game plan was so meticulous. And we knew exactly how we could hurt teams and how they would try and hurt us. Um, and more than not, I'd say 80% of the time, the game plan really worked. Um, so that was a big thing from Chris Coleman doing that. But say going into those last those last few games of the campaign, when you're so close but you're not quite getting over the line, you're starting to get a bit nervy. But yeah, say after that Cyprus game, going into that Israel game, we were ready for a big party on the, on the Sunday night. but Unfortunately, it didn't quite happen as quickly as what we wanted.
1: Hey, we we crossed. We got over the line. That's what matters at the end of the day. Absolutely. I just
2: wanted to ask about those qualifying games, Dave. Because watching them back over the last sort of month or or so, um, both Dave and I were struck by just how many tactical changes were made between each game. It's only when you see them kind of in that concentration that you remember that there was a lot going on sequentially in terms of formations and tactics from Coleman, and. I think there's, retrospectively we tend to think of our tactics as a bit stagnant almost because we had a framework by the time we got to Euro 60, but actually there was a lot more evolution to it than perhaps one remembers. Um, how is that communicated to you as players and, and how is it received when you there's all those changes? Um, well, it,
0: it's given to us a message which is relentless or <laughs> from the very first day you arrive at CAP. First week and it was right. We're playing this formation, and then we work on it every single day of the week, in and out of possession, set pieces, everything. And we knew right. Basically, you would you wouldn't name the team on the first day, but you do shape on the first day of training, and you would say, "Oh, I'm not playing." <laughs> Everyone sort was buying that goal, but you would you would know from the so you had a whole week to work on, which I think international needs to be like. I don't think you could Wait until the day before a game and the of the team and expect the last to go out and play. Well, it's not like club football like that. You don't get that time. So I think he did it 100% the right way. But I remember, I actually, I wasn't in the squad for the first game against Andorra. And um, I remember I'm pretty good friends with Sam Bokes and I was messaging him in the day to see if he was playing. And then I said, I asked him what the team was and the shape and stuff like that. And when he said the shape, I was like, that's not even a formation, is it? <laughs> and he was like, I guess honestly, I've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> um, and then we're doing Sandor, and the message which Vokesy was telling me, and I was obviously in the following squad, is that they met up before and said, right, we're going to play this way. It's going to be the, the 3 4 3 or whatever it is, but not like you've ever seen it before. <laughs> um, But we're doing it against Andorra because we're going to need it against Bosnia. And we're going to need it against Cyprus in the next one. So that we need to get used to it now. Probably thinking that we're going to beat Andorra comfortably. But it's important we learn it now and be in that environment of actually playing a game in it rather than just training. So when it comes to that Bosnia game, we can go and execute the game plan. But I don't think anyone realised it was going to be (laughs) such a hard game out there. on that. I remember it just being freshly laid down in the pitch out (laughs) now. That was awful. But you can see the, the planning that had gone into place. So before the whole campaign started, we've got a way we are going to play. And it basically was to our two best players, Aaron Ramsey and Gap, how can we get them in the best positions possible to win us games? And that was to the play them as two number 10s. So they come up with a formation which worked around right that. And then we've got to be one of the first, not just nations, one of the first teams to ever play that formation. Then all of a sudden it's become very popular in the last couple of years. And Chelsea did really well with it under. Um, uh, the Conte I think yeah. Wolves do it so well now under Nuno um, a lot of teams play it, we've even played it a few times at Shrewsbury so it's <laughs> it's a very popular way of playing now but when we first did it it was it was um, really something no one had ever, ever seen before um, but that just shows how much preparation had gone into it the whole lead up to the campaign making sure everything was right for that first game and then consequently it, it worked out really well so it's that's probably where it differs from previous regimes, where it's right. let's see what we've got. Let's see who comes and turns up. Whereas under Chris Corbin, it was, oh, no, we're playing this way regardless. And I expect everyone to turn up unless there's a, a genuine injury and then we've got someone else who just fill their space. Even if it's someone like Aaron or Joe or Gareth missing out, we still knew someone was going to go in and play in exactly the same position.
1: Um, obviously, looking forward to the Euros, obviously we qualified and an, an unbelievable experience for everyone. You started that first match against Slovakia, which given obviously that was your first call up to the squad. I thought it was a nice bit of symmetry. Um, obviously, yeah. you know the, the the anthem and everything like that. Everything is talked about. You know the the fans singing in the warm ups, and you know can you give us like a, a as much of a guide, I guess, as, to that day as you can because it must have been just amazing. Ah,
0: it was. We do open a couple of bottles of wine. If we're going to properly talk about it, It could take that long.
1: <laughs> That's fine um, by I've, me. <laughs> I've,
0: I've, I've got that many memories from it. And Again, I, I alluded to it early on in that conversation. Uh, we're we talking about wars and, and shoes and things like that. I'm so happy it happened to me when I was 30 years old because as a 21-year-old, it might just be all excitement, all straight in my head, whereas... Um, things i've been through in football and the more you mature i knew that that was a special time of mine and i probably knew it was going to be the highlight of my football career whatever happened at the year if i didn't even play a minute i knew it was going to be the highlight of my football career so i wanted to take it all in like every single aspect of it and i remember i kind of journal anyway but i remember i was writing everything down every, what we did in the day, making sure you know, the emotions I felt and things like that, really going in depth because I knew I never wanted this sort of to leave me. Um, and I said, and especially that, I can build up to that first game from, I remember we did a, a session two days before, which was the day the media, I think. Yeah, it was the day the media are there um, in Dinar. And we just doing some shape, but all the cameras on the picture, it was all mixed up, all the shape was and things like that. And then, Chris Collins didn't send me. then he put the actual team in and I was starting alongside Joe Allen and I kind of knew that he wasn't going to play Joe Ledley and Joe Allen together because they have both come back from quite serious injuries yeah. and to play them both together is a But I always just presumed he was going to play Andy King. Andy King had just won the Premier League with Leicester. Um, played a lot for Wales. always kind of played ahead of me in more recent years for Wales. So I just presumed he was going to play, but when I saw something, oh, it might, might not be real yet. Don't get yourself too excited. And It wasn't until after training, he called me and said, look, you, you're going to start. And he gave me the reasons why. Um, and I just, honestly, I was so gobsmacked because I was so, not worried, but anxious about just being in the 23-man squad. I was so made up that I was just going. And then I thought, if I can just play one minute, just make one substitute appearance then I'll play a major tournament. Never in my wildest dreams I think I'd start that first game and I was incredible and I, and I genuinely didn't get nervous either I was just so excited for it and um, the, I remember the, when we got to Bordeaux the, um, the night before we, we played at the stadium but then there was just Welsh fans everywhere and you're looking at the hotel window we was in a bit of a sort of industrial park really but you could still see just seas of red everywhere and then I remember the next day I think a lot of Welsh fans must have got wind of where we were staying and there was a long corridor to towards where we ate, and it was all glass, so from the outside of the hotel you could see, and every time, it was really hot, obviously in Bordeaux at that time, she had all the windows open on that corridor, and every time players would past, you saw this big roar of Wales fans <laughs> cheering and sitting <laughs> and it was just incredible, and the morning of the game we went for our walk, um, and we went across where the trams are and things like that, and that was what was really special. I don't think a lot of other teams would have done this They'd have actually security all wrapped around and things like that, but, we went out for our walk before the game and sort of mingling with the Welsh fans and everyone was just so, all the fans were just so excited. They were just couldn't wait for it to begin. And I was a little with jealous that I wasn't one of them at that point, just to <laughs> sit back and enjoy it as a fan. It would be far more relaxing um, and enjoyable. But yeah, everything was brilliant and only to get to the game. And my sort of job was, I remember Chris Connor saying to me, is. They had Marek Hamzik, who's obviously a terrific footballer. Um, and he said that we want Joe Allen to get on the ball, but we need you just to kind of, when plays evolve and we go forward, just stay central in the pitch, just absorb pressure. So when they get the ball, you're the first line. A bit like I did against Cyprus and Israel in those games. Try and win the ball back and then get it to Aaron and, and Garrett. Um, I remember <laughs> I in the stadium, testing out the pitch before the game. And, um, where the spider came on the pitch, and know, swooping down and following Gareth Bale around. You can see him on the big screens. And then it kind of cuts to Slovakia riding. I don't know why. I must still be hoping that in some part of me that he was going to be injured or he wasn't going to turn up. <laughs> but how <Ham> just <laughs> appeared on the big screen walking into the stage? I was like, oh, he's here,
1: down
0: glasses on it, no, Um, So I'm all right, game on. Um, and then the national anthem was just the best bit for me. It was just out of this world um, the noise of the Welshman they're sort of behind us to the right um, and it was just oh, I was so loud and even before we came out we was in the dressing room and you can hear don't really hear this even in Modest, Modest you don't usually hear the noise outside but you can just hear the thudding outside we're on the other side of the stadium so what the fans were at the Welshman and you could hear the thudding and Chris Coleman was trying to calm everyone down but you could still hear this noise coming in and um, I remember his team talk was like, whatever you do, do not be nervous. You, even if you lose every game, you have gone further than any Welsh player in recent generations. They are already so proud of you. So don't have any expectations. Just go and enjoy it. And I think I think we did. Um, then the anthems came. I always remember seeing on the big screen a Welsh fan. on of falling in his eyes. Out. I as singing it. And I think that's on the TV pictures as well, that is. Um, and then the game started, and I was just desperate just to get my first touch, just to get it away. Well. I think James, Pest, J- James Chester passed it to me, passed it straight back, and like, off, off and going. But then about three or four minutes in, I was so wound up and so desperate to do well. Hamlet picked up the ball and he sort of running towards the box. He goes if he's going to shoot. This is trick, he always does. And I remember Chris Collins saying to all the game, "Whatever you do, don't dive it. Don't he used to say, don't throw big shapes because he will." chop you and go the other way. So he's lining up to shoot. I'm thinking, right, I'm gonna block this. I go flying in, big slide tackle, tops me and Ashley Williams and then he scoops it over way. And I thought, Oh no, four minutes in and they scored and it's my fault then Ben Davis out of nowhere, clears off the line. Um and I hope so much of that. He kinda of saved my blushes three four minutes in the game. But then everything settled down and we had Gareth's free kick and modem after that and uh, it's just an amazing day, everything about it. Um and yeah, just incredible. And after that first game, it takes a lot of pressure off to get three points on the board. You know, you're only really one win or one draw away from qualifying. Then, like the next two games, so it was a massive relief and got off to the perfect start.
1: I mean, obviously, like what, like for, for Ruth and I, like for us, experience. I, like you said you weren't nervous at all. I, I think we probably collectively, you know, did did the nerves for you. I think, um, but it's, it's amazing actually to hear you say that because I mean, I. Like I say, I was terrified that day. I barely slept the night before, um, and so for you to kind of be so calm and relaxed. But it was by the end of that, just an unbelievable experience. I mean, you obviously played in the in the three group games. Um, what was it like? Obviously, that that day against Russia, you came on and, and played. Like the the buzz after that match, going into you know the Northern Ireland game and knowing you would qualify for from the group stage, it must have just been an unbelievable buzz in the camp.
0: Yeah, and I think that was our aim. I think our collective aim was if we can get just get out of the group stages, um, then that would be just incredible. It would be far more than what anyone ever expects of us and would have made everyone really proud. Um, so we we've, we've just trying to do that. And then obviously, the highs of the Slovakia game and the lows of the England game, it was a tournament of football. It really takes the heavy, emotionally. Um, but then that Russia game was a special, special performance. People talk about the Belgium game a lot, but that was the the most complete I've ever seen a Wales team perform under immense pressure. No one expected us to beat Belgium, whereas the Russia game, pressure was on big time because the Russians are nowhere near what they used to be. We were probably expected to win the game, but we knew we had to win or at least get a draw to to qualify what's going through to last um, 16. And Chris Coleman before that game was quite critical of himself, saying that he got us too up for the England game. We were too involved in the moment. It was the old enemy. We, would, we wanted to almost hurt them more than we wanted to play football and Welsh football since Gary Speed has been about playing out from the back and playing through lines and we've gone away from that a little bit and almost like he got to us a little bit too much whereas that uh, Russia game worked on it all week in training that we're going to pass whatever. If it goes wrong, he kept saying, it's my fault, blame me, I'll take all the blame in the press. The ball gets cut out into midfield, it's my fault just go out there and play. I remember right from the first minute, I remember Ben Davis whizzed one into Joe Allen in the field. Perfect touch. We played down the other side and we were hyped and I thought, we're on it today. And then we scored three incredible goals and we just dominated from the first minute to last and it was watching, but it was a joy to come on when I did. with sort of 50, 20 minutes ago. It was just, what dreams I've had come on that's sort of, It's such a huge game and knowing that we're playing so well, we've won the game. If he's quite there, and enjoy it. Um, but, I I think all the Welsh games I've ever been involved in, all the ones I've seen, subsequently before that, it's it's the best performance I've ever seen from a Wales team. Um, And it was after that, I just felt like, wow, we we could do something special here. We really could do If we play like that, we could do something special. And then it was probably a bit of a disappointment then to then get drawn against Northern Ireland, because it was a game which we knew how well Northern Ireland had been playing but we didn't want it to be just a British game of football. I think we played better when we played against these European teams and were forced to play more tactically. And We'd seen what happened against England, and we were worried, probably, it was going to happen against Northern Ireland. It probably did to a certain degree. It wasn't a pretty game of football. um, They made it really difficult for us, and we were probably the favourites again for that game, which probably didn't suit us a a great deal. But um, we managed to get through that, and obviously had an amazing tournament.
1: Um, like that was that was the Northern the Northern Ireland game. Sorry, was the game that I travelled over for. And I agree, it was kind of a bit of a weird one, like being a, a British game, if you like, and wanting some kind of more glamorous opponents. But then again, once we'd got through, you sort of don't really care anymore. You're just on to the next one. Um, yeah. How how did it feel for you not kind of being involved against Ireland, Belgium, and then and Portugal, and, and Portugal especially? Did you did you think because you would replaced Andy King in the first game that? you would be the replacement for Rambo uh, in the Portugal game and like kind of how did you how did you feel about it all? No,
0: well a lot of people don't know i, I said a little bit in my book but a lot of people didn't know that so I was a bit disappointed in coming to a Northern Ireland game so I was, I was fully fit and healthy but then the day before the Belgian game I um, I it was we did a five-side in the trade and I've had a shot i tweaked tweaked groin, and my groin kind of went a little bit I was like, oh no worst thing that could ever happen and then they had loads of fizzy on it that night. The next day, um, and then I remember Chris Cole was saying to me, "Just see how it is in the warm up." But he said, "If you're not right, I need to know because you probably, chances are, you're going to come on because Joe Ledley's not going to last 90 minutes. You have come on in every other game. The um, the North line game was different because we needed a goal, and they brought on Johnny Williams. Was I think? Yeah, I think they brought on Johnny Williams. Yeah. Um, but he says we, we're going to need you. So if you're not right, you have to let me know. So I said, fair enough then. And then I remember in the warm up, I was. Didn't really want to kick a ball too hard because I knew it was going to hurt. So I was doing little pass like, oh, it feels okay, it feels okay. And then the physio came out to me, sort of, just before the the end of the says, Right, you need to start hitting balls properly now. I remember mean, I hit a few and my groin straight away started to really hurt. I was like, such a huge game. There's no way I can possibly come on in this sort of game and expect to play. I'll be letting my teammates down. It's not fair for me to come on at like 60, 70 percent and try to run around when I know I can't do it properly. So I kind of said it's not right and I was just hoping I was going to be fit for the next game so I didn't come on that game It was kind of bittersweet for me it was an amazing game but I was annoyed because of my groin and then it was all like trying to get fit but then the following game for the Porsche game it was a bit of a, a battle with me and the physios because I was saying I'm fit now but they didn't want me to train because they wanted me to rest it but I felt so much better um, and then the day before the game I trained with the physios and I felt like I could do everything I needed to do I knew I wasn't going to start that game Um, because obviously I hadn't played before, but I felt I could be on the bench and come on. Um, But I didn't actually train with the team, so I think that kind of played against me going into that. But I think if we'd have obviously won the Portugal game, then I'd have been able to have a full week of training before the final. So I was just hoping and praying we got got the win. So those last two games, the Belgium game, I definitely couldn't play, the Portugal game, I felt I was fit enough to be on the bench and to come on. But I don't think, I think when we went sort of 1-0 down, 2-0 down, even if Chris Coleman wanted to put me on, I think there was probably better options on the bench to go and win the game. But again, I'm probably pretty adamant if I was fit I'd have come on against Belgium. Um I think Joe Levy came off about fifteen minutes ago. I think I'd have come on and then um and then I would probably would have had a possibly would have had a decent chance started against uh, Portugal. So that is a bit a bit sweep for me, but I was just so happy that I played obviously the first game and played the group games as well.
1: Sorry, Ruth, I've been asking a million questions. I'm having a great you're time right. here. I'll, I'll hand over to you now, sorry.
2: I wanted, I wanted to ask about the Belgium game as as someone that effectively at that point you were almost had your fan hat on watching that yeah. that game, Dave, because of what you were saying about your injury. So what is happening on the bench when you're watching a game like that that's ebbing and flowing the way that one did?
0: Um, so that was a bit different for me because I wasn't probably as... I think starting a game of football, you're nowhere near as nervous as when you're on the bench. Because when you're on the bench, the thought of coming on, and usually, whenever I keep coming, it's usually when we're nil up or something like is to hold on to a game, so it's it's always a nerve-wracking time. Um, but then I wasn't nervous, I knew I wasn't going to come on then, I was annoyed about McGrawley, but I could almost relax and watch the game, and you watch it, as a, a it's a bit different to club football, because if you're on the bench for your club, yeah, you obviously want the team to do well, but you think, I want to get on as well, though. So. Hopefully, there'll be a point where I am come, whereas for Wales, you're just thinking, we, just, we need to score and you just can't wait to score. And when that first goal went in, we hadn't started the game very well and mm. Belgium was so like, oh, just one step too far for us. And then after Belgium scored, I thought they were on top for a little while. But then we started to play about 25, 30 minutes in. We started to play and we yeah. finished the half so strong. Mm. And then getting the goal just before time was so important. And then all of a sudden, it's like... We're definitely Belgium's bogey team. We've we've got them, here. we've got them wobbled. And I mean, Joe Allen was mesmeric at the end of that first half, and in the second half as well. Um, yeah, we just thought we'd go, on there and then house, scored that goal. Oh, you are a proper fan. I've got an ice pack on the groin. I'm running up the line to try and jump on him. <laughs> and that. Um, yeah, you just you're it's a proper fan. You just can't believe what's going on. You're watching. You've got the best seats to watch in history. Really. Um, and that's what it was. We knew how big a moment this was. We knew how many people watching back home. Um, and to be involved, being in that inner circle, is is very, very special. Um, and that's if you were on the bench of staff members, everyone together. Um, and it was brilliant. Every time we scored, you'd, you'd see we'd all celebrate as a, a team. They'd always run over to the manager and the subs bench and things like that. That's what it all meant. So we all knew that everyone had contributed at some point to, to where we were. Um and it was just brilliant. And then, obviously, just nerves after that. After house goal, just nerves. Just watching the clock, waiting for it to go down. It just feels like it's ticking by so slowly. And then, when big votes scores, it's just pure relief and release. Um, and then you think, wow. I mean, I the first after that Belgian game, before the first time that it, it sunk into us that. We could actually win the Euros here. And I think that's probably played against us a little bit with that Portugal game. We thought Portugal I don't think they won a game in normal time, had yeah. they, up yeah. that point. We've we've got their number. Um we think we I genuinely thought that we were a better eleven. I know they had Ronaldo, um, and a few other good players. I think as an actual team I felt that we were better. Um and I think that's probably a bit of complacency came in for that game, or whatever. But obviously Aaron was a huge miss and Ben Davis. But I think it was the first time that we thought why we could actually do this. We were just worried like we just wanted to turn up and have a bit of a party but we could actually win the Euros. Um And we had the right side everything. We had the right side of the draw didn't we? All the big teams were going out on the yeah. other side. Um, you know, it just felt like it was going to happen but then I mean, it was obviously so disappointing. It was such a we didn't have Aaron for the game. I think obviously Ben was a well, well. Aaron in particular. He's our creator, Spark. He's the one who makes things happen. Um, yeah, it was just just a bit of a flat way to end the tournament, I think. I mean, that's what I
1: felt so disappointed to point out that it ended in that way. Um, looking forward uh, a, a little bit, obviously you've now retired from Wales. What kind of was your <laughs> your deciding factor, I guess, in, in doing that? Uh,
0: well, a few things. I feel that um, it's definitely going to be a new start for Wales. I was desperate to try and get to the World Cup. And that would have been a perfect way for me to, to sign out and to be involved, and that would have been incredible. But So I'd, I'd moved away. I'd moved to Reading at this point. Um, my family was still back in Shropshire so I had two young kids. At that time, they would have been seven and five. Um, so I was only getting back on a Sunday, really, to see them. They might try and come down in a week or, or something like that, but I wasn't seeing my family much. And then I knew I wasn't going to be first choice of Wales as well, I think Ethan who had just started to come through. Um, the ranks as well. I'd seen first hand what a good player he was and then he stood up the likes of Andy King, Joe Ledley, Joe Allen. Um, so I knew that I'd probably still be in the squad but I wasn't going to play a lot and then I looked back to when I was young and I'd have never got the opportunity if some of those lads hadn't retired which the likes of Carl Robinson and Carl Fletcher and, and people like that yeah. they could have stayed playing longer but I would have never got my chance And I felt like that I was staying around it would only be for selfish reasons that would uh, pick up a few extra caps a few substitute appearances just to try and get to 50 caps that would be the only reason i had been staying around apart from the love of playing for Wales but then I looked at my family side and going away for two weeks at a time um, when I could be at home with the family at that point um, and then probably sitting on the bench and not necessarily coming on I weighed everything up, and it just seemed it was the right thing to do. It felt like it was the end of an era with with Chris Coleman leaving. It felt like there was young players coming through, deserved the chance. And then I was living away from home, and it was would be an opportunity to see my family more if I wasn't sort of away on international duty as well at that time. So it just all sort of culminated in me making that that decision. So I think in the end it was quite an easy one to make. I was so proud of having played play 43 times Wales and the Euros was a great way to sort of be towards the end of my career. Just disappointed the World Cup didn't quite happen. Um, but yeah, I think it was just the right, it was the right time. And looking back, it, it definitely was. Yeah. I see the way Wales have gone now on the Ryan Geeks and how Young they've gone. I think it would have, I don't think I'd
1: have played a lot of football on the Ryan Geeks. So I think it was a, the right thing to do. I know Ruth wanted to ask something about uh, about the Ryan Giggs era and what you thought of that. Yeah,
2: I was just I was just interested in what you you feel he's brought to the table in the, in the, the current circumstances, Dave. I think
0: he's <laughs> he's massively looked after the future of Wales with the amount of young lads he's played um, at times. So I've done the. A lot of pund- I've been mean, lucky enough to do a lot of punditry on some of the Wales games and so I've been analysing them a lot um, ever since he took over and the amount of new caps he's given, the, the amount of times he's left older players out, more experienced players out for younger lads and there's a time where I've, I've kind of questioned him a little bit. Um, more I thought naivety at the start of his managerial start because he was constantly trying to play at the back, play football which We'd always done under Chris Coleman and Gary Speed, but we also knew when there was a time where you couldn't necessarily play. Yeah. And there's a time you had to remember you were Wales and you had to dig in and fight and try and get yourself to stay in the game and things like that. And I felt there was a yeah, that year's sort of grace before any competitive football start. And then it was at the start of the Euros campaign where I thought that he was a bit naive. I think it's the, the Croatia game out in Croatia in the summer and then the Hungary game. Um where we got caught the ball far too much and we didn't want to go long. We we're trying to play from the back and I mean, the second Croatian goal come from that. Um, but then towards the end of the campaign, he kind of switched it completely and he brought Kiefer Moore in and went a bit more direct, still played. Um, but within his, his, his time as manager, there's been some exceptional performances to really has. Look at the, the Republic of Ireland game, the um, Slovakia game. Yeah, was in the group, weren't they? The first game of that campaign and then the way they finished the campaign as well. has been brilliant. And I think mean, having the postponed for years is only going to be good for Wales. It's going to give the players, the likes of David Brooks and players that time to come back. But then also this young team more time to get experience, which is crucial. Um and what I do love about Ryan Rankings is that he's been really brave. He's sort of there's times where he's made decisions he like, oh, if this goes wrong, he could, he could be in serious trouble. Um, and he has, he's made big, big calls. And the likes of me, you know, Ashley Williams on numerous occasions, Chris Gunner, um, Sam Boat's not really playing when there's probably an opportunity for him to play up front and stick with Keefer more and things like that. There's been big calls he's made and that's what managers have to do. And he's he's not been bullied into anything. He's very much done it his way. And I think um well, football's in good hands at the moment, I really do. He's definitely took me a while to win over. But I can I can comfortably say now I'm very impressed with everything that he's doing and and the future as well. I think the, the younger like I look at our front four, what could possibly our front four? It's it's has got one of the best front fours in the world. I mean you you think you're, <laughs> you're yeah. Aaron Ramsey, you oh, I players and I wouldn't play him as a deep I'd play in a number ten. You've got Gareth Bale, you've got Dan James, you've got Harry Wilson, you've got David Brooks to try and fit them them all into a front four. They're going to leave out special, special players, and I don't think in Welsh history you can say we've had a front line talent as that. And then you've got Joe Allen still playing brilliant football behind. With possibly, I just hope to God, Ethan Arp, gets a, a good move next year where he goes and plays because he's he's a special talent. And if if they can have him play in next season in in the Championship i getting him to play 30, 40 games. He'll be massive by the time the Euros come around next year. So I really hope he can get playing, and, and then it's, it's it really as exciting stuff for Wales. And that's because of Ryan Giggs. He, he's put them in early, and he's played them. He's built their confidence, and um, and he deserves all the plaudits from that. No, I, I, I
2: think we like we like you. We were we were a bit well, more than a bit sceptical. And there's <laughs> there's definitely been performances where it's like just what is going on here because there seem to be. No plan A, never mind a plan B and, you know, the switching and the changing. And the, uh, at times you'd feel like there would there would be dogmatism in that, you know, we're going to play, as you said, this kind of flowing open football. I think, ironically, that great performance against Ireland in the, the long term might not actually have served us so well because there was a, an opportunity to win a game by playing football, but... It wasn't really analysed in the context of who we were playing and how they were playing, and you know That's what we were, what able, to, yeah, what we were able to what we were able to get away with doing on that day. And then to to then have the strength of character to turn around and make the decisions that he made in the autumn of last year. I do I do think um, there's there's praise warranted there. And you know, speaking personally, I think just navigating us through that that hungary game where you know, we had a one-off game at home. We had to win, and no managers managed to get us through that before. And so, I think his I think his evolution actually is is as fundamental as the evolution of the team. I think the integration of the young players is obviously key, but I think his development um, we can't underestimate either. And you can also see it developing off the field as well, can't you? Like, is his involvement with the FAW Trust and things like that seems to be on the rise
0: yeah definitely i think he's he's become a lot more prominent isn't he in the media Mm -hmm. in terms of what he does for wales and and in wales because chris Coleman was very very good at that wasn't he He would go and visit (laughs) villages in wales which no one had ever heard of before (laughs) and go into local schools and charity events and and he made him he sort of really lived and breathed it and put himself in there i think that bought him probably a lot more time from when he because he was obviously had that really tough start, but then also he, I think it took it to the, the fans' hearts then because of all the stuff he would do. Um, I think Ryan Gick, it looks like he's sort of doing a lot more of that stuff now. Um, I see him doing a lot of coaching stuff with kids as well in Welsh schools and stuff like that. And he's still going to be a hero to so many kids and teenagers. They'll see him play football and know what a <laughs> hero he is. So. I think he's, he seems to be using that in the right way. And the PR around him has become a lot better because obviously when he first came in as manager, it was sort of a bit of a PR nightmare, really. Um, but I think it, they've, they've done a great job of it and he's done a great job as well. Being under so much pressure um, and he really has come out at the other end. And so I think the majority of Welsh fans, if not all of them, are fully behind him now in the way he's doing things.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that the tide has turned on that one. And like Ruth said, we were we were fairly uh, unconvinced at the start, but obviously that's 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 taking a turn now. Um, I, I, we don't want to keep you all day, Dave, and you've been fantastic talking to us. So thank you. We just wanted to ask a, a little bit about your charity work as well. Um, you're the first person to endorse the Offside Trust. And obviously, we want to talk about your Little Rascals uh, work as well. Um, yeah. So would you like, can you tell us, you know, obviously the first person to be involved in the Offside Trust and, um, why did you want to get involved in that? Really,
0: um, I, I I didn't understand the the um, not much the importance of it, but at the time when I spoke to a guy called Steve Walters who who heads up the offside charity, one of the the um, the main guys there, and he spoke to me about it, and I said, well, of course I'll help. What what you guys have been through is absolutely horrific, um, and if I can help safeguard other children going through that and all the young children and of course I'll help and I never thought for once that no one else was doing it and I couldn't understand when he did tell me that you will be one of the first players to endorse this no football clubs have have helped us or anything like that I thought how can there be sort of stigmatism about this this needs to be out there I kept taking it back to my little boy who's at the time he would have been six six years old yeah probably about six years old at the time when I first got on Thought. If, he's not, if he went to an academy or if he went trading and he's not safe, then that, that's just not right. And if not enough people know about this, then if I can be a small voice in helping it get out there, then I'll 100% do it. And I remember putting it out there and I sort of posted some stuff and done some videos for them and things like that. And then I remember them saying to me, Have you checked the walls that you can do this? And I was like, Well, surely they're not going to be faster me doing this. And he goes, Oh, no, there's a lot of clubs who won't touch it. I was like, that just seems bizarre. But obviously you understand now the history of some clubs' involvement in it and, and stuff like You They wouldn't know what happened years ago. But I have to say, I spoke to the press officer at Walls, a guy called Paul Barry, who helped me with my book. Um, and he said, well, let me just do some digging for you. But yeah, carry on doing what you need to do. And then he come back and he says, oh, it's something that we would like to really get involved in as well. And he and, and him and the rest of the Wolves kind of PR guys in the hierarchy. They invited the guys from the Offside Trust to a game and put them in a box and sort of did them a tour and did a big PR event around it and, and they helped. Wolves are really good at it as well and thankfully since then it's it's taken off and more people have um, backed them and spoke out about it and it just it, it scares me that it was that not a lot of people knew about them and what they've done to safeguard safeguarding which they've helped happen. Is, um, is incredible. If it hadn't happened, it, it frightens me. I think I grew up in a very, very sheltered life and background here in Shropshire, and I would never imagine these horrific things would ever have happened.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I think it was a generational thing, and I think it, it still will happen now, but it'd be harder for it to happen, but the more noise we make about it, everyone makes about it, the harder it will be for, for predators to keep doing what they were doing. So it's important that this gets out there and it kind of screams from the rooftops because I thought of your child not being safe playing football or
1: doing anything for that matter. Yeah. It's just wrong. Uh, Ruth, do you want to mention about the the Little Rascals
2: as well? Yeah, I was... Um, Obviously, we, there's two aspects to Little Rascals, isn't there, Dave? There's, there's yeah. your, your sort of play centre plus the foundation. So can you explain the evolution and how that came about?
0: yeah well it's probably even taken more evolution from that since then but we uh, so originally me and, me and my best friend um he's always worked with children in care um, especially kids with autism and we always said we wanted to do something in business together we had both had young children at the time and this was in 2050 let's open a play center up in shoes because there wasn't any around at the time and we thought business wise it would be a good thing to do so we opened it it was a uh, it's been a, a great success, still going sort of five years later. But about a year or two into we thought, well, let's do something now to, to try and give something back. And we always said we want some, some start some sort of charity. And we were looking at maybe helping um, term meal children or something like that. But then we've got a real wonderful charity who, who we know called the Harry Johnson Trust in Shropshire. And they do amazing work with kids who have camps and things like that. So they're doing a really good job. Let's look at something else. And with Ben's background in um, children with disabilities, and I was brought up, and my mum looked after adults with disabilities as well. So I was always being around um, sort of adults suffering with different things like autism. So we thought, let's do something to, to help these families more than anything. And we originally wanted to raise money to give to the families to go and spend on equipment or holidays or things like that. But then the more we got to um, know these families locally and we got involved in a lot of different groups around the areas and got to learn a lot more about learning disabilities and physical disabilities, we quickly realised that they they didn't want your money or anything like that. What they wanted was our time and services. They wanted a place where their children could come, especially the children with sort of behavioural issues and Autism in particular, the things which they have to deal with as families is is more than you could ever imagine as a parent. Um, They can't go out in public. A lot of the the guys on the sort of the highest end of the spectrum, um, because of they don't know how they're going to react in public places, whether if it's um, children being noisy or, or things like that. So they stay away from their places, and also you will get people looking at them differently and yeah. talking about them differently and they don't want to put the, the children, all the families don't want to be in that environment. So what we first did, the first thing we did was make sure our play centre was on a Wednesday and a Monday, we'd have it open solely for children with disabilities and their families and their siblings as well because we felt it was important that if they had able-bodied siblings, then they could come along as well. So we created that stuff. With, but then it was like we were just sort of, poking at the tip of the iceberg and we um the families appreciated so much what we were doing but we were quite scared of how little they had anywhere else we had all of a sudden become their their primary not caregiver but their primary place to go to to be comfortable their children and the biggest thing was they said that they would come and sit down in the play set and all of a sudden you just see their shoulders just relax and they thought wow, wow i'm around families who know what i'm going through i don't have to worry who that my son is making a noise over there or he can go and do what he wants because he's around similar children and no one's going to judge him or judge me um, and that was great but then we found that the parents need a voice to talk to as well so we have a lot of people talking to them but then there was other services we needed to give as well so we started a, a holiday club up so when the specialist schools are uh, sort of in the easter holidays christmas holidays we would then run cops from the play center Um, then after school clubs so the parents can work or whatever um, and then come pick them up at five, six o'clock. We offer respite services so when these parents, they go through a lot of stuff and if they're constantly 24-7 having to look after their child and be fully engaged in what they're doing, they never get any time themselves. So if we can have the children for two or three hours and give them the type of care they need, the quality care they need, just for them the mum and dad just to go out for a meal or have a bath or something simple like that just have a bit of their own time mm-hmm. so we've done that we do mentorship as well for more children as their teenage years and young adults we do work experience they can come and work at the center to sort of get them into that working environment um and we just keep doing more and more but obviously we don't get any help from local authorities or anything like that the, the parents mm-hmm can pay for sessions and things like which helps us pay for staff but all of our money comes from fundraising events and we find again that there's only so many fundraising events you can do and there's a certain amount of money you can raise and people are very generous with their money but it it wasn't enough so we made the decision about a year ago to actually change the centre from a business to a charity so every single penny that the centre raises so any sort of money which is paid on admin fees uh, food, coffee, everything like that, all that goes into Little Rascals Foundation's kitty and then that's given us some extra money to be able to go and sort of make a bigger impact so that's where we're at at the moment but then coronavirus comes and all of a sudden the centre shut now so we haven't got that income to support the charity and the fundraiser events we can't quite do so it's been really difficult for us in recent months but we're hopeful that we can sort of still be here after the the virus has passed because the families need us more than ever and um, Children, especially with autism, they're finding it really difficult at the moment because they're out of routine and routine is everything for them. So um, we've still been engaging with families and we, we want to be here after them. So we've done things like auctioned one of my Wales shirts from that Russia game yeah. and it raised nearly £3,000, which without that money, um, we don't know what would have happened. That, that allows us to live to, to fight another day. So that's been really important and we're still hoping that we get one of these business grounds which would be life saving for us. We know that other charities have received theirs, but for whatever reason we haven't had ours yet. So we're hope still hopeful of getting that. But it's um it's really it's more rewarding than anything I've ever done. Um and I think being being a footballer it kind of it's given me a position to almost have a bigger reach um publicly and get it out there a little bit more. And I think that's been important for the charity. Um, And we know that this can go on and grow. We can help more and more families. We just need to sort of get all the business side of it underneath it set so we know that we're going to still be here in sort of 12 months time and then take that to five years, 10 years and and sort of be the number one support group for children with disabilities, not just in Shropshire, but into mid Wales, to the West Midlands and, and things like that.
1: No, that's absolutely fantastic, David. Like it's, it's it's so great to see someone like yourself and anyone really who wants to be involved in in doing something like this and and really making a difference. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I kind of I donated for the for the shirt thing as well, and it was like a great event. Listening to you talk on on Instagram and and talk about your career, but obviously the work that you do for the foundation as well. It's just. Fantastic, really. I mean, I obviously would have preferred it if I'd have won the shirt, but you know, we can we, we, we can maybe talk about that when we stop recording. I don't know.
2: <laughs> I just wanted—I actually just wanted to say thank you, Dave. My um my sister and nephew actually live in New Zealand, but my nephew is heavily autistic, and the difference it makes to have the sort of services that you're providing, where. Families can behave like families with their friends, and the parents get to breathe. is incredibly valuable.
0: Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, we see it firsthand, and as I said, that it's it's wonderful to watch. Actually, when you are at one of our um, SEN sessions, you you walk in, and when you see a family come in, the kids will run off. And what's nice as well is they play with their brothers and sisters who maybe haven't got autism, but they can't play together in an environment like that apart from home. But now they've got this space they can run around in and really play. Um, It's when the parents sit down, they sit down, they take off their coat, they get their coffee, and you you literally see their shoulders drop about three or four inches. It's like, right, I can relax now. And then they get to talk to other parents who are in similar positions. They get to share stories. And it just gives them an an hour, two hours, three hours away from what is a, a manic, hectic life. Um, living with children with disabilities sort of um, like autism. It's, it's a full-time job, um, and these are the parents, children who they're going to do everything they can for. So they have to put their lives on hold for their children. They really do. So to be able to create an environment where they can just be themselves for a little while um, and interact with other, there's a lot of them, again because they won't go out, they won't necessarily have that human contact with um other adults their age and things like that. so to be able to come to our environment speak to other parents other carers and just have normal conversation with a cup of of chocolate or coffee or whatever it is have some food it really is gold dust to them and um so that's one of the most proudest things which which we do with the foundation
1: well absolutely dave that's like you say that absolutely fantastic and i know from a personal level that means a lot to ruth as well so um yeah, it really is fantastic. Um, I just wanted to say a massive thank you, really, for you giving up. I, I was I was hoping we would get an hour of your time, and we're ninety minutes and still going. So, um, I just wanted to say a, a massive thank you, really, for you joining us and and taking the time to talk to us and answering all our questions. And and obviously, it's great to see the the lives of the Euros kind of lived out for us personally. But obviously, you as a player and as a fan and as part of that is is yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a great ninety minutes. So, thank you, Dave. I really really appreciate it.
0: I'm looking forward to being part of the Red Wall for the next one. Get to see yes.
1: <laughs> well, if you if you let if you let me know where you're staying, Dave, when you go to Rome in 2021, I'll be going with the boys. I'll, we'll we'll buy you as many beers as you want, mate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll hold <you> to that. by <laughs> fine, fine, me.
2: Right, thank you, Dave. It's been I've been we've been fortunate actually in a strange way this. We've been able to indulge in a lot of chats with a lot of interesting people during the during uh, the lockdown, but we're we're grateful for your time. No,
0: worries, i really enjoyed it. Always good reminiscing.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, there you are. Thank you very much, Dave. J- Dave, not Jave. Um, Thank you very much, <laughs> Dave. I'll edit that out. Uh, and thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye.
2: Bye-bye.